This episode, I'm joined by Mikkel Krauss-Franson to discuss his book, Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression, alongside discussions on the work of Foster Wallace, Michelle Hulenbeck, and Mark Fisher. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you would like to support Emetics or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Mikkel Krauss-Franson, thanks very much for joining us on Emetics podcast. Thank you. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, which was published in 2019, I believe, so last year, um, Going Nowhere Slow, The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression, uh, which was published by Zero Books, which is a, well, as you can probably tell by the title, it's a book dealing with um, the idea of depression in contemporary society, but it's viewing it through four sort of cultural um outlets i guess you could say um so the work of michelle hulenbeck uh, the work of david foster wallace who i recently did an episode on uh an artistic duo uh, goes under the name of claire fontaine and lars von Trier's film uh, melancholia um and i sort of said to you that i sort of am more familiar with hulenbeck and foster wallace um but i hopefully will dip into the other two as well um so but but before we sort of dive into the book fully just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh why it was you you know, how did this book come about? Why did you decide to write it? Well, I guess, I mean, when I uh, finished my education at the University of Copenhagen, I was just, you know, as most people do, I guess, just, you know, going about trying to figure out what to do with my life and work-wise and, and all of that. Um, and then I started doing a PhD um, on depression. And the reason I started doing that or the reason that I found it important was that you know it was pretty obvious to me that the statistics are very clear on the increase in the diagnosis of depression in pretty much um, the whole world but in particular in the western part of it Uh, so I was really curious to see or to find out more about um, that fact that more and more people are depressed or becoming diagnosed with depression um, all around us, really. Um, also, of course, on a personal level, um, I guess most of us know people who are depressed who have, or who have been depressed. Uh, I myself uh, had, I don't know, I, I still don't know if the proper English word is uh, a postpartum depression for men or something like that. But anyway, when... I became a father to uh, a set of twin girls. Um, I felt like shit for a year, basically. I was just exhausted and tired. I uh, I was basically unable. And I know this may sound harsh, and it is obviously also shameful saying it, but I couldn't really find any love for my own children. Um, so I was really feeling depressed at the time, um, uh, so there were several reasons for looking into this phenomenon um, and to try to figure out the the experience of depression um, on an almost phenomenological level. Um, and I find that literature and culture more broadly are very apt at getting really close to the details and the feelings and the temporal experiences, for instance, uh, that go on. Uh, in depression Um, but I was also very keen on trying to take that experience of depression seriously while also placing it in a broader historical political 
economic context because the more I looked into it, the more I found out that the dominant discourse, whether we're talking about the public discourse or the scientific discourse, is really, you know, it's all about the individual. It's all about the private suffering of, you know, or the personal pathology of various people. And it's, of course, remarkable to me <laughs> that that kind of thinking or framing the problem is still so very much in vogue um, while it's so obvious that there are a lot of societal and political economic factors that feed into the phenomenon of depression. So that's, you know, the rather short story of, you know, the background for the dissertation that then gradually, luckily, uh, turned into a book published. Yeah, I guess it's two years ago now in 2019. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, time is weird in this uh, COVID situation, isn't it? Yeah, time sort of... I wonder, I do. I was thinking that the other day, how 2020 is going to seem in five or six years. Is it just going to be this sort of like memory memory hole where we all just like blanked it out? Yeah. But it's, you know, I think 20, 2020 seems to sort of be dragging its heels. It's still got a few months left in a way. Yeah, um, so... That's a pretty good overview. And I mean, the personal aspects there are pretty, the, you know, not to comment on it too much, but the postpartum depression in men is especially something which I've heard of before, but I guess is rarely focused on because it uh, it's one of those things, I guess, that still uh, has stigmas attached to it. So it's probably, you know, it's quite a strange one, I guess. Um, but yeah, so before we move into sort of the specifics of you know, depression and the politics of depression. I do have to ask you the hermetics question. Um, you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listening on the uh, the conversation. Uh, who do you pick and why? Yeah, it's it's a very difficult question, um, of course. But I've chosen uh, Ursula Le Guin, who is obviously a writer, a writer of, or who was a writer of science fiction novels, but who is also, in my mind, a very important thinker both for the 20th and the 21st century a very important thinker uh, in terms of ecological issues uh, political issues um, so I've chosen her because she's both you know she has a very clear view of the important matters at hand and the personal problems that are still facing us today but she's also a very humoristic person it seems or her novels at least, are very playful. So um, I would go with her. And then I would also go with a thinker that has been important for me for years, but also for the book that we mentioned or talked about earlier and that we're going to talk about more um, during this conversation. And that's uh, the German Marxist and mystic. And yeah, I guess there's a lot of epithets to put on his name, but he's called Ernst Bluck, who wrote a trilogy um, after the Second World War, called the Principle of Hope, das Prinzip Hoffnung in German. Um, and it's a very par paradoxical endeavor that he took upon himself during the Second World War, basically being in exile in the US. His wife's parents were had been deported and, and were killed in the concentration camps. Um, and he was just having a shitty life in the US, um, and then he decided to write a book about hope, which I find remarkable. 
and um, yeah. I, I, yeah, just, so I would go with him, and then the last one is uh, to give it a sort of you know Danish flavor. I would go with Son Kierkegaard, who has also been immensely influential on my thinking, both on depression but also on on life in more general terms. And he's of course a well-known philosopher for most people, I guess. And he, he's written a really beautiful book called "Sickness Unto Death." It's called Sudom Tidun in Danish. And it's about the phenomenon of despair, which I find I find a lot of resonances and echoes with the more modern phenomenon of depression in his writing on despair. Um, so these three people in a room that I, and I guess a lot of people would be interested to hear what they would have to say to each other. So before I sort of comment on the room there, it's interesting. I just realized I've had, you're now the third um, Danish guest. And each and every one has either put Kierkegaard in their room or oh. comment on him quite a lot. So you, I, it's quite nice. You've sort of, oh. you've, there's quite a few philosophers out there who, you know, countries sort of keep them close. So <laughs> he seems, uh, that's that sort of happens every time. So oh, there, must okay. be, there must be something in Kierkegaard that maybe is you know, truly only discernible to people from Denmark. Yeah, it's Maybe. just, I mean, his prose and, and I know academics and philosopher, philosophers who have learned themselves Danish to be able to read him in the original. And that's, I mean, I would definitely recommend that if not for the fact that Danish is a bit hard to learn and a very small and stupid language. But his writings are just, you know, so beautiful. Mm -hmm. is there i mean obviously with all translations there's going to be differences at least in um like not so much style but the impressions that you get is there i'm I'm assuming you've read the danish and the english like is there big differences there i mean i mean i think the the translations that i've read i think they came out at they have come out at on harvard university press i think there was a couple or, or two people who've done the editing of those volumes that's quite a lot to edit uh, and translate i th i think they are pretty good um so it's not like there were a lot of you know errors or misconstructions or or anything like that it's just that his way of writing and his particular attention to specific words and you know word plays and uh, and also picking up on german words then you know transforming them giving them a new meaning in a danish um, context is very of course hard to capture in an english translation for instance um yeah but other than that it, i'm i must admit I, f I feel a bit stupid for you know <laughs> choosing him um like other danish guests on on your show but i mean he is a great writer and a great thinker in his own right whether he's danish or not Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but one thing I would comment on your room that I guess might surprise people who you know we're talking about a book of depression is actually it's an extremely hopeful room. I mean, I haven't read any yeah. Le Guin, um, but everyone in there, as you say, Le Guin is very playful. Kierkegaard, there's a lot of hope, and you know, is is that the reason you picked the room? That there's something in there that people who are dealing potentially dealing with these kinds of things. I mean, especially Kierkegaard are their first trajectory is not to sort of dwell, but to find a way to, you know, leap beyond it. 
Yeah, I think that is a, a common thread um, and something that aligns or, you know, make for a great conversation between these three people is, is that they deal with, you know, pretty heavy and dark stuff, whether we're talking about ecological catastrophes or, or the horrors of the Second World War or, you know, just general despair in mid 19th century Copenhagen and um, but they so that's what they really dive into but they all insist in their various ways to also try at least to leap or go beyond that and try to find some glimmers of hope or some kind of paradoxical impulses um, that can lead to change whether we're talking about personal change or more you know collective political change and and of course that's also something that that has been pivotal for me and for my work on depression uh, to have this uh, twofold focus in a way to deal with the horror of depression as david foster wallace would perhaps put it but then also trying to think about okay how do we get out of the state of depression um, is there a way out and if so what form could that um uh, road take uh, so I think that's been important for me, not just to, I mean, I don't mean to sound like some kind of, you know, stupid optimist that is just saying, well, you know, the glass is half full or, or anything like that. It is really recognizing that the glass is empty, um, but then also trying to yeah, to stay with that uh, lame metaphor to, to try to, you know, <laughs> to find some water or another liquid to put in there um, and to make us, you know, breathe again or swim again or whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, almost in a way, a healthy room in a way. Um, but I mean, diving straight into, you know, the notion of depression. Um, I'm sort of hoping, I'm, I'm assuming you've read probably Mark Fisher's work because when I thought of this first question, um, you know, Depression, I think Fisher puts it aptly as the slow cancellation of the future. Um, yeah. You know, when you when you're depressed or when you have depression, it's it, it's the future slowly becomes non-existent to the point where people. I've heard people say that they're surprised that they made it the next day. You know, they've never and it's strange. I've heard stories of people who come out of depressions who are sort of then completely existentially stuck because it's like a whole new mindset. They didn't they didn't ever think that the future would become a thing for them. So, you know, what do you think sort of takes the place of, I guess you could, in, in quotes, the normal future for people who who do have a depression, who are depressed? Yeah. Um, obviously, Mark Fisher is perhaps the single one um, thinker that has influenced me the most. And I think this is a good day to mention his name and to remember his work, because I think it's precisely on this day um, that he died uh, in 2017, I think. So it's four years to this day. Um, and it's strange to think about. And his work has meant so much to me and to so many people around the world. And he, his work obviously resonated so strongly with so many people, um, uh, both on a personal and on a political level. Um, and I, of course, picked up the idea... Um, of thinking about depression in terms of temporality, of thinking about depression as a cancellation of the future, but also of the inability to 
imagine the future, uh, which is, of course, a very painful and personal experience for anyone who's been depressed, you know, lying in bed, you can't get out of bed, you're exhausted, but you're also unable to imagine that there will be anything else that this present state of affair, which is just hell on earth, basically, and you cannot imagine tomorrow, you cannot imagine the most immediate future. Um, and I think what is lost there, I I would put it in terms, and here I borrow something from a German thinker who's done work at the intersection of psychopathology and philosophy. He's called Thomas Fuchs, and he's written about the desynchronization that occurs in depression. Where And what that means is that you what you experience in depression in terms of time is that time moves more slowly or the future is cancelled but that is of course immensely painful in itself but what is even what makes it even worse is that you are still able to see the world going uh, just continuing down the down the path uh, all all around you you're still able to see people around you who are just continuing their lives they're going to work they're getting out of bed and the clock and time works, you know, perfectly for them. Um, and it's just from one second to the next and from one day to the next. Whereas when you are depressed, um, you don't have that sense of, you know, implicit temporality. You really have the sense that time has become explicit, uh, as Thomas Fuchs puts it. And it's a very painful experience. And perhaps the most of all the things that I've read, whether we're talking about fiction or poetry or, you know, more scientific uh, articles or in in academic journals, it is that temporality that has struck me the most um, as an um, absolutely crucial thing uh, to get my head around. Um, so I would define depression as this sort of chronopathology, as an illness in and of time. Um, and I think the state that you are in when you are depressed is a kind of negative internity. Um, it's a sense that this state will go on forever. There is nothing else that this is than this um, eternal state. And that is why, as you mentioned, when people get out of that um, pathological state or very, you know, despairing or depressive state of mind, it feels like a whole new world. And it's, it's, it's difficult um, to get out of depression, but it's also difficult on the other side, so to speak. Um, and what I also think, I mean, and also speaking from personal experience, is that your memory also stops functioning the way it used to. So you can't really remember anything when you are depressed, but also when you are not depressed anymore, or when you are not as depressed as you have perhaps been before, you cannot really remember anything from that period of time. So, I mean, I just have for me, at least, I have a, just an almost total blank hole of six to nine to 12 months where I'm really incapable of, you know, remembering anything what happened during <laughs> almost a year of my life um, with my um, children, basically. So I, I think there are a lot of interesting things to say about the relation between depression and temporality. And I think Mark Fisher was very good at describing those things both of course from a personal point of view but also 
uh, trying to politicize that particular personal experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I think the thing is as well is that, um, which is sort of the tough question that people are reluctant to to tackle sometimes, is obviously we're having this discussion about depression. Uh, when I went into this book, it's one of my first thoughts is, you know, it's something um, I'm not a huge fan of is it anymore. But Will Self talks about the internet in the way that the internet is never going to be your friend. It's always going to say that you should sort of stay on. And like Amazon will always just keep recommending you books. There's never going to be a point where anything on the internet is going to say, perhaps you should take a break. And it's sort of the same with depression. Depression is your worst, you know, I think, what's that sort of small book? Black Dog? A black Depression is a black dog, I think it is. I can't remember. It's old, or My Shadow or something like that. And it keeps drawing you in. And it will always, um, you know, it's it's always the thing which sort of says, keep keep trying, keep sort of dwelling in me. And, mm. you know, that's the thought was, obviously, I, <laughs> I greatly, greatly enjoyed your book and I would recommend it to anyone. I'm not saying don't read it. But there's the question of, you know, what is it to continually pry into these things if we're trying to get out of them? And some of the, you know, some of the things you're using, especially Foster Wallace, I think he's someone who, Clearly, along with Mark Fisher, Foster Wallace really made it clear that he was striving against this straight away. There was no real dwelling in it in Foster Wallace. Whereas Hulenbeck, I've had to, I, his latest book, I had to stop halfway because I just thought this is, you, you, he really has drawn the line and he's just, he, he is completely just defeated, in my opinion. So, I mean, how helpful do you think it is to continually theorize on these things if you're trying to get beyond them? Or out of them. Yeah, I, I think there are different aspects to that really good question. Um, I think uh, starting with um, first of all, when you are depressed, um, I think there's a, this demon that Wallace has also written greatly about, where you sort of you know, you cannot really escape the demon of negative thinking and you just continue down the spiral or the black hole of, you know, where you're just endlessly uh, repeating the same dark thoughts or the same obsessive almost um, thinking patterns. Um, And he's written about that in The Depressed Person, for instance, a short story. Um, So I think there's that which is a danger to anyone who is depressed that of course, I mean, it's not easy to get out of that because it's sort of like an album that you put on the, what's that called in English? Uh, the record player. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it skits. So it just keeps repeating the same, you know, small musical phrase over and over and over again. It's just, you know, you're really stuck in this uh, same obsessive and unhealthy rhythm in a way. Um and I and 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 that's where you know <laughs> psychologists will tell you, well, you need to stop this negative thinking, and you need to start embarking on a journey of positive positive thinking. And if you can change your mindset, and if you can change your way of thinking, then you will get out of depression. Um, and I think so. There's a lot of you know <laughs> thorny questions because, I mean, it's clear to me that you, I mean, and I think anyone who has been depressed will agree on this, that that it is not sustainable uh, to stay in that depressed negative um, thinking. 
but then on the other hand, I'm not quite sure that, that the solution is just to, you know, say, well, you should just be more positive and then everything will be all right. Um, and then, I mean, that's the first part of it. The second part of it is, you know, if you're then afterwards or on the side trying to theorize depression, um, I think that's important also to take the experiences seriously, whether these experiences are the, are your own or not. But it's also important, as I guess I write somewhere, to find a discord, discourse about depression that is not in itself utterly depressing. And I think that's where Will Beck, for instance, fails. He also, he not only dwells in his depression, he also finds this weird joy almost in, you know, just really, you know, indulging in his own, you know, sort of, you know, male or machismo state of, you know, depression, um, which I think he's very well aware of, uh, to be honest. Uh, um, but that's also why I found his work more and more repulsive uh, the more I've <laughs> removed myself from it. But I've also, to be honest, uh, been less and less fond of the work of David Foster Wallace. And I guess maybe that's just the fact of working with a writer for too long. You're just going so deep into his or her way of thinking and then you're just really fed up with it at one point. Um, and I've certainly also reached my limit uh, with the work of David Foster Wallace, um, but on totally different grounds than, uh, than my uh, hesitation uh, with uh, Will Peck's latest novels, which I have also found found very hard to read or even finish. Um, I, I'm not quite sure if I've answered your question, mm -hmm. but that was just what sprung to mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had the, It's strange, I had the same um, <laughs> thing with Foster Wallace. When I recorded the episode on him, I sort of, I, I was so into him when I was younger. When I was about 18, I just had this, like, people, I think people who are into Foster Wallace will know what it's like when you first, and if you if you really get into him, people will know what I'm on about. Like, you go head first into it for like a year of just pure Foster Wallace mania. And then, yeah. I, you know, the reason for me, you know, the Hulenberg one, I completely agree with you. It was the indulgence, almost like, not to be around the bush, but like he was almost getting off and like, how miserable can I make this character to the point where it still seems realistic? Like it couldn't get any worse without being like ridiculous. Foster Wallace, I guess for me was that he always, he seemed to indulge in his like over analytical thing. Like he never, yeah. he never stopped. And it was sometimes you just think, why have you gone? Why have you gone like so minutely into everything here? Uh, which was always a mm. frustration. So that was my that was why I sort of got burnt out on Foster Wallace because it just never stopped. It's just constant yeah. churning mind. Um, but I think it's also, I mean, just to add to that, I I think there's, I mean, maybe three reasons for disliking the work of David Foster Wallace. <laughs> One is that you are disliking him from the very beginning, saying this is just a work for the you know young male. Uh, people who are getting off on 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 this very smart uh, great white male novelist from the US um, another one of those and then the and and that's the first reason maybe and the second one would would be the one that you've just described that you are you know you've just read him so intensely that at a moment at some point in time it it just gets too much in a way um 
his smartness also and 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 all of that the reason and the third reason i would say and that's the one that i've also struggled with struggled with is that dealing with his work um within the context of depression was also just so excruciatingly hard um because I realized at one point, and this is not to pathologize his work or anything, but I just realized at one point that every single word of his could be viewed as very symptomatic of a depressed person's state of mind or way of writing. Um, and reading Infinite Jest, reading the depressed person, reading other stories and essays, it became clear to me that he was just so depressed for most of his life. And he was just so, as you just said, he was so keen on analyzing it to the very end, his own, you know, pain and his own depression and his own horror and the analytical details and his phenomenological experiences. They are so accurate, but they are also very pathological in a way. Um, and he just goes on and on. And he's very aware that I, I think he puts it several times um, along the lines of, you know, the analysis is not the cure, which is, of course, an old Freudian insight that even though you have the best analysis of your own or a patient's, you know, pathology, it will not be enough. It will not be enough to be aware of why you are feeling like this. It will not be enough uh, to get out of that feeling. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, it's just a black hole, basically, when you go to find his work and you cannot get out. But that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is that you realize that he couldn't get out either. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you bring up the the core of the, you know, the analysis isn't the cure because this is, um, you know, the next the, when I ever I think of depression, I try I always think of the, the sort of famous little R.D. Lang clip where he says depression's like being in the you know, the deepest, darkest dungeon, the, the, the cell right at the end. Um, but the door's unlocked. You know, you have the choice to walk out, but everyone always wants, yeah, they always say, oh, I need to know how I got in here. Mm. And so, but that analysis is always, almost always, at least for Lang and the anti-psychiatry movement in a whole seems to, you know, promote this, uh, this idea that it is just a state of mind that you could just go like, right, you know what? The door's unlocked. I'm done seems to be the people sort of dwell in that cell. Do you, do you, do you agree with that idea that that's, you know, possible? It seemed earlier that you were a bit critical of, you know, contemporary psychology sort of says you need to just change your mindset. And it always comes from a position of like, yeah, but I'm not in a mindset that really understands that. The depressive mindset isn't one that it's just not really the same as any rational mindset. So people saying, Oh, just change your mindset. It's like, well, I don't know what this mindset is really. Mm. So how can I do that? Do you, you know, do you think there is a possibility of like, Oh, I'll just, I'll just leave, you know, I'll just stop being depressed. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But of course, I mean, I haven't read too much of Lang or, or the anti psychiatry movement, to be honest. Um, and I've been meaning to do that for a long time, but I've never really gotten around to it. Um, and I think there's a lot of crucial insights that we really need to take seriously uh, in this day and age, even though they have been, at least in the Danish context, they've been ridiculed. And, and, and if you bring up 
this kind of work you will not be taking seriously by anyone um and there are also of course immense problems uh, with some of their uh uh both writings, uh, their theories uh, of depression, for instance, but also their uh, therapeutic practices, which have also uh, some of them their own problems. Um, and I guess I know what he was trying to say with that sp uh, specific metaphor and saying, well, you're just in this dark room, but the door is actually unlocked. It is not like um, there's someone holding you in there or a, a guard standing outside. Uh, and what I think he's trying to get at is that kind of, you know, what's the word in English? It, it's some kind of, you know, the way that thinking reinforces um, itself. And the the more you think about depression, the more depressed you will get and so on at infinitum, uh, like the spirals uh, that David Foster Wallace is also, you know, uh, performing, uh, but also representing. I. I guess that's what Adi Lang is problematizing. And I think that's, you know, a good thing to problematize. Um, the problem then today is in our contemporary society is that that idea of just leaving the dark dungeon of depression uh, um, of your own free will or because you choose it, it has this, you know, it has some negative connotations or some problematic, you know, resonances with positive psychology and with all these mainstream ideas, you know, books at the airport or online um, guides to deal with your depression. And what they all come down to is that depression is your own responsibility. Um, and happiness is also a choice and you can choose to be happy. But that also means that if you are unhappy, it is also because of your own choosing. It is because you have chosen the wrong uh, thoughts or you have chosen the wrong um, uh, the wrong way of living, basically. So I think that kind of infinite responsabilization of every individual in our society, that's the idea that we need to push most strongly against. That's the one we need, really need to be... Uh, aware of but also you know criticizing uh, forcefully uh, because i i think that's the most dangerous um idea within the therapeutic uh, universe it is that you are solely responsible for your own health for your own you know well-being but also for your own happiness and which as i just said which means that you are also solely responsible for your own depression and I think we need to really stop uh, talking about depression in those terms. And we need a much more nuanced and, and a much more collective, politicized understanding of depression instead of just, you know, going about it in a, a very narrow-minded, in, um, in individualized discourse. So which, you know, what, what sort of societal and political structures do you see as... Um forming the basis of many people's depressions, especially in the West. Sorry, uh, you just fell out. Uh, um, you know, which uh, societal and political structures do you see as forming the basis for depressions in the West? Well, 
I think, I mean, <laughs> the easy, but also probably the most correct answer would be capitalism. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I mean, as a, as a queer theorist and Svetkovic has written, uh, saying capitalism is a problem doesn't help me get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I think that's very accurate. Um, but I think, I mean, the, the capitalist societies in which we live um, is a key factor in the increase in the diagnosis of depression. Um, but we can also perhaps be, be a bit more specific than that, uh, um, at least for the sake of the listeners. Uh, so I'll just bring up one concrete example mm -hmm. uh, of the way that the political economy has a role to play when we are talking about psychopathology in general and depression more specifically. Uh, and that one example would be debt and indebtedness um, because it's well documented that people who are in debt are much more likely to suffer from depression and various other mental illnesses than people who are not in debt. So that means that, you know, when you lose your job, for instance, or you lose your home or you lose your income and you are forced to go into debt or whether you are a, a student um, uh, who takes on a lot of student debt, then you are much more at risk for suffering um, from depression, from anxiety also. So I think, I mean, I'm not saying that, okay, if we just abolish capitalism, then we would have no more depression, no more suffering, no more mental illnesses. I think Le Guin is also very good at showing that even on the most utopian planet, they will, there will still be, there will still be problems there. There will still be problems. Um, uh, uh, of course. Um, but I do think, I mean, if we imagine, and that's not that difficult to imagine, that we abolished debt or, um, and all those movements that are also, they have also arisen during the last decades, um, movements that call for the abolition of debt in general, but also student debt in particular. I think that would be immensely helpful in terms of, you know, psychopathology and mental health, um, I think that would, you know, mitigate a lot of uh, psychological problems, to be honest. Um, there are all, of course, other factors uh, uh, to be discussed as well, but, but, but I think I'll just stick uh, with that particular relation between debt and depression. Um, another one would be poverty and depression, where the American Psychological Association has also shown that I think if you are living in poverty, I think you are three times as likely uh, to get a depression than if you're not living in poverty. So I think the numbers are really clear on this point. And, and of course, you also have psychologists and psychiatrists talking about these issue, issues. It is not as if um, every single one of them is promoting this um, individual uncontextualized version of depression. But when you look at the diagnostic manuals, for instance, but also the public discourse online or in newspapers, it is, you know, a very, very specific way of dealing with mental illness. And it is a, dealing with depression without any context whatsoever. They are solely looking in those diagnostic manuals at symptoms, and then you can list them and you can cross them off. Um, that's not a word, I guess, in English, but you, I guess you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, tick them off and then you'll get the diagnosis on, 
or not, um, without any regard for you know the more contextual matters that obviously play into the uh, potential depression. Whether that's because you've lost your job, whether that's because you are in a job that you really, really hate, <laughs> whether it's because you are sent home from COVID nineteen, whether it's because of you know ecological catastrophe, whether it's because of poverty, debt. There are so many factors. Um, that needs to be taken into account here. Do you, you know, when you, it's interesting when you're talking about poverty, do you think that it's primarily to do with one's, you know, empirical reality, the the fact that they, they literally don't have enough, you know, income or money, or do you think it's to do with their conception of themselves in relation to that poverty? You know, Steinbeck sort of famously said that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a nation of temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You know, this idea in capitalism that, especially with today, within you know, I mean, it's been talked about to death. But with social media and seeing, you are you are sort of bombarded with people who are extremely well off. Do you think it's more to do with ones? You know, people may just have a little like enough to get by, but which might be fine. But because they see their reality in a certain sense, you know, they're not as they should be. Do you think that that plays a larger factor or do you think it is just more the the empirical reality? No, I mean, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I think it's both the, let's call it the economy, as if that thing exists, um, <laughs> and then talk about ideology or let's talk about morality uh, or norms uh, on the other hand. And I think both are important and perhaps equally important. I'm not quite sure which one is more important, but that's not really important. But what is important is that, and I've written about this in an essay for Los Angeles Review of Books, that kind of double injury that capitalism inflicts on depressed people. They make them feel depressed or they causes, capitalism causes depression, but then it it also makes people, people feel bad about feeling bad. And that kind of double injury um, is very, very specific, I would say, to not only capitalism, but also neoliberal capitalism. That way of making you feel like shit, but then also making you feel responsible for feeling like shit or making you, I mean, the way that, you know, poverty has also been not, not, not only personalized, but also criminalized. Uh, I would say, so that when you are poor, you're not just struggling with the empirical reality, as you put it, you're also struggling with, you know, the shame that goes along with it. You're struggling with the contrast between your own life and the world, the billionaires, whatever, and you're struggling with um, the moral judgment that is passed upon you um, by therapists, uh, and by the more you know public discourse and culture um i think that's obvious that both dimensions um are at work mm-hmm. so it's a reality where not only you know do you not like it but you have to be happy about you not only are you in a bad situation but you have to be happy about being in a bad situation do you yeah. you know what sort of what what do you think that causes to your psyche where you're putting that Bind where you have to force this false persona you know i mean a lot of people make jokes about minimum you know minimum wage retail workers in the uk and people get annoyed because they're not like happy when they serve you and it's like well 
why why should these people like have to be happy you know um yeah. you, but they you're forcing something in you which is completely not true you know what what do you think that does to you well i mean we can look at what it does to justin in last von trier's movie melancholia uh, which i write about and where that imperative of happiness or the ideolo- the ideology of happiness is put in front of her uh, quite brutally uh, by her brother-in-law in particular who's played by Kiefer Sutherland in the movie and he's she's she is just basically depressed at her own wedding and she is feeling like shit and she's constantly also desynchronized from the wedding uh, in the sense that when they are supposed to cut out the wedding cake, she is not there. She's taking a bath. When they are supposed to, you know, uh, do the 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 wedding dance or whatever, she is not there because she is in a different time zone. Um, and then her brother-in-law is just constantly bombarding her with, you know, demands of her being happy. Why are you not happy? You should be happy. You have no right to be unhappy. I think it's also formulated uh, in in the movie. And I think, I mean, what it does to her is that it just forces her to go deeper into her own depression. It just forces her to be even more alienated than she was to begin with. And that uh, <laughs> first alienation was quite uh, strong to begin with. Um, so I think that's a common psychological reaction, isn't it? That, you know, when you are living in a situation uh, or when you are feeling depressed, uh, it is not exactly helpful to have people saying to you, well, you should just put on a happy face or you should smile and you should be happy all the time. But that is, but that is sort of the message that you are getting uh, when you are depressed. And some of that is, of course, you know, imagined you're lying in bed and imagining that all your friends are out living these incredibly fanciful, happy lives with, you know, Uh, drinks and partners and children or whatever. Um, But some of that is also very real in the sense that you can actually meet people who will say this to you. You can actually meet therapists who will say this more or less explicitly to you. And I think that, yeah, that's just brutal. Well, it's complete alienation. It's just saying you're you're uh, you're not the norm. So do you... This is something I think I've never really truly worked out, for at least for Foster Wallace. Um, do you think any of these projects which seek to, you know, go beyond depression, try sort of go back but go forward at the same time in some, you know, get beyond irony or begin to be sincere? Do you think any of these have been successful or, or have found a way to really deal with depression in an original way? Uh, that's just one of those almost Im- Possible questions. (laughs) It depends what you mean by successful, I would say, because I mean, David Foster Wallace was successful at describing very accurately the pain of depression, but he was not successful in evading or escaping uh, that pathology himself. Um, But then we're also talking about, I guess, suicide as a kind of failure, and I would be very reluctant to do that. Uh, just as I would be reluctant to say that people who die from cancer have lost the battle uh, to cancer or they died because they they didn't have a strong enough will to live or anything like that. So I think basically we should 
avoid those categories and uh, dichotomies, uh, thinking about health, whether that's mental health or not, in terms of success and failure. But I think that's just my way of also going about your question in a roundabout way. Um, I think David Foster Wallace's work has been successful, if we should use that word, um, in terms of describing uh, the illness, but also in terms of trying to get a more public or maybe collective sense of what this, what it means to be ill or mentally ill in this specific way. I also think that the work of Mark Fischer uh, has been incredibly, yeah, again, successful in square quotes um, in terms of collectivizing uh, and politicizing the understanding of mental health uh, and depression. Um, but of course, I mean, it is not that easy as a writer or as a academic or as a thinker or an, or an intellectual to, it's difficult enough to describe uh, depression accurately, but it's a completely different thing to then be able to suggest some kind of cure to be able to actually do something about um, the collective problem of uh, depression, to be able to actually do something about the increase or the explosion of depression diagnosis. Uh, I'm not quite sure that's this, the solution or the cure lies at that level. I think that's much more on a political economic level than at the level of individual authors or books. Um, but I do think that authors like the one we've mentioned, we could also mention Claire Fontaine, we could mention a lot of other artists who have worked with depression, um, they have done important work in trying to de-individualizing in, de uh, the problem. Um, they have done important work in trying to, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to say really. It's, it's difficult um, talking about cures and, and talking about solutions and talking about success. Um, yeah. So help me out here. Um. Well, I think yeah, that's a it is a it's a it's a tough question, especially the idea of success. And I mean, in terms of specific, specifically in terms of Foster Wallace, he has, you know, in multiple essays, and I think in Infinite Jest as well, he comments a lot on the idea of failure, which is sort of seems to be a relatively inherently capitalist idea. This idea of like a very clear cut conclusion and like to actually be a failure. Um, so I think success is probably basically the same thing but in reverse like you just you either you know the idea of not succeeding it implies some sort of like place that you need to be or need to get to so i guess that's a it's a big question to ask hmm. um but what do you you know you mentioned that you think these would change at a political level do you, what is there something perhaps not clearly but something you would see changing on a political level that you think would um at least open up the discussion in a way that, you know, that Mark Fisher was pointing towards. Mm. I, th I mean, when when we're talking about Mark Fisher, I, I, I also really feel like quoting him, quoting Beckett, where he says at one point that if I have to hear that Beckett quote, fail again, fail better, go on, or something like that, I'll just, you know, uh, go insane, basically. 
uh, which is a way of going about a common tendency on the left to just, you know, to really indulge in that kind of, you know, failure and trying to promote pessimism or failure as a way out or as a um, as a strategy, both political and aesthetic. And I think he's right, Mark Fisher, in saying that that is not a strategy. Let's try to not just, you know, not quoting that quote anymore, but let's also try to think about uh, the solutions or political movements in different terms and on different levels. And what I have seen um, lately, at least in Denmark, which is the context that I know the best, is that there is an, an artist called Jakob Jakobsen who has tried to to do some, to create um, alternative institutions um, beyond the field of psychiatry. So he was depressed. He has been hospitalized several times. And when he has been out of hospital, she has done very activist um, artistic work on asylum seekers and camps in, 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 in Denmark. But then the last time that he got out of the hospital, he thought about trying to create um, yeah, different spaces for depressed people to meet and to take care of themselves, but also take care of each other. So I think that is one start at least to create um, spaces of therapy if we are allowed to use that worm word in honest um, and to try to think beyond the institutional domains uh, that we know too well in a way um, the domains of the psychiatric ward for instance the domain of the uh, psychological therapeutic conversations, all of those that are not, you know, evil or necessarily unhelpful. But I think there's a really, very basic acute need for other forms of therapy, for other forms of treatment in a way. And I, I think those small steps and small collective movements should not be written off for not just engaging in a, you know, complete revolution um, from day one, uh, because as, as I've also written somewhere, before you can do revolution, you need to be able to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also need some kind of collective sense of doing something important uh, to be able to get out of bed. So there's, of course, this dialectical relation between them. Um, and I think that's that's a good place to start in a way. Uh, I think Mark Fisher was also something similar. Um, in his thinking on communism as a as a therapeutic political movement in a way. Um, but then of course there's a different level and that has to do with, you know, the economy, uh, the political economy uh, in on a larger scale. And I think that's of course much more difficult to, for artists or academics to engage with. Um, uh, and here I'm thinking about the way that uh, psychiatry, um, I mean, when politicians in Denmark has uh, have um, have met to distribute uh, the money of the welfare state, psychiatry has been uh, uh, right at the bottom of the list. Um, uh, so it's pretty worn down. And I guess that's the same uh, in a lot of other countries, if that uh, 
healthcare has not been totally privatized uh, or just you know erased by now, uh, as we've seen in the U.S., um, for instance. So I think there are, there are different battlefields when dealing with depression. Um, very different battlefields, but I do think it's that it is important to try to connect these battles uh, and to build alliances, basically, uh, so that we are not lying in each our bed feeling like shit or feeling depressed, but that we may maybe maybe someday get a sense of you know a common ground or a common collective sense of doing something important together. Okay. Okay. Um. We, uh, we're getting on for an hour here. Is there anything you'd like to add in about your book that you think is sort of key that we might have uh, you know, missed? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more going on in your book, but if there's anything yeah. you, uh, you'd you like to put in that you think is sort of key to you know what it is you're worrying about specifically. No, not really. I mean, I what I would just want to say is that I think there's still a lot to think about here uh, in terms of you know the climate crisis, but also in terms of COVID-19 and mental health uh, on the one hand, taking those issues seriously and really trying to think about, okay, what is the psychological effects of global warming? What is the psychological effects of, you know, being in a lockdown, sitting in front of your screen for a year or so, not seeing any people at all? Um, saying, taking that experience seriously um, and the pathologies that may arise, but also avoiding on the other hand as nicholas rose uh, has pointed out avoiding all this talk about mental health epidemics and all of that because there's also this tendency to exaggerate mental health issues and and talking about those issues in pandemic or epidemic terms um and i think that's a danger to be avoided um uh, so i think there's a lot of complicated issues still to be worked out on a both theoretical or practical level and i hope that i've dealt with at least some of them on a very sensitive level level in my book um but there's still more to be done for sure okay okay um whereabouts can we purchase your your book uh i think in bookstores it's it should be available but they have closed they're closed at the moment right <laughs> uh, so i guess it's <laughs> available online um, for those online retailers that are still you know distributing books um, the company that should not be named I guess it's available there but let's try to avoid that particular uh, company um, and try to figure out where to get our books elsewhere whether that be my book or other books um, but I do think it is possible to order it online um, okay. And and I guess from the several books or John Hunt publishing homepage, uh, it is possible to order it directly from there. And I think that would yeah. Okay. Okay. Are you are you sorry? Are you working on anything at the moment? Have you got anything planned? Or I've just written a small book in Danish. Uh, a small, I don't know if playful is the right word, but a small book on ecology uh, and culture. Uh, and on the specific concept of what I call the hyper-abject. Uh, Timothy Morton, the ecological thinker, has written about the hyper-object. Um, and I try as a way to pick up on that notion, but also to criticize it and nuance it to write about the hyper-abject. Um, and it's been a really fun book to write, and it's not written 
uh, it's coming out in a few weeks on a small publishing house in Denmark. So it's also in a very liberating manner, not concerned with conforming to academic standards and, you know, the slowness of the whole academic machinery, uh, whether we're talking about academic monographs or articles. So I've written about that um, and I have a project lying that's on the, a project on the relation between finance and fiction or between financial capitalism and literature. Um, and it's specifically about the financial thriller of the 1970s, where that uh, colorful cheesy genre arose. Um, so that's also something I look forward to working on when homeschooling has ended and COVID-19 has gotten a little bit better and all of that. But it's not a lot of work that's being done at the moment, that's for sure. Okay, sounds very good. Um, seems like a good place to finish up. Uh, Mikael, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.